This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You fill out a questionnaire, they match you with a licensed therapist, and you can switch anytime, no additional charge. So, celebrate the progress that you've already made by visiting betterhelp.com slash yanks today, and you'll get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash yanks. Up and welcome back to an episode of Sharp Stats, the Talking Yanks boys, myself, John Boy, and only fitting that we are joined by a queen after the London series, the queen of stats, KT Sharp, and we are we are recording before the first of two against the Metropolitans, so anything that happens in that game can't be held against us in the court of law. But for today, we've got some fun stuff. Uh, DJ LeMahieu is forcing us to talk about him. Um, if you haven't seen him, should the past couple weeks, he's been out of control. And a little bit of a zoom out a little bit, a little bit of what's going on with the Yankees' lead in the AL East uh, and, and what that means historically a little bit. We'll send it around quickly. Jimmer, I'll start with you before we go to the Queen. How are you doing, bud? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I cleaned the entire house today. So besides my office, my office is a mess. Cleaned the house. Got nice and sweaty. Uh, Yankees are coming on soon, which will bring us back to a normal schedule right in time for the All-Star break to throw us out of loop again. But I'm excited. And like you said, I'm excited to talk about DJ because that London trip just added to an already incredible resume that he is putting together in this 2019 campaign. So I'm excited for what Katie has for us. And well, uh, no better segue. KT Sharp, how you doing? And I guess what, uh, do you got any, any thoughts from London? You know, uh, me, me and you heard me and Jimmer bicker a little bit about it. Um, where, where are you at on London and where are you at in general? I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit mixed on London to me, it did really seem like more of a, an exhibition than than a real game. I, I think it was partly, you know, a lot of the fanfare and all the extra stuff that kind of went into it, um, the build up to it, I think, as well. But um, and then and then it's hard to kind of take a lot of the stuff seriously when with what you saw in those games and that ball just just flying everywhere. And I think you guys are right. It really wasn't the, the fences that were the problem. I think it was more that turf and some of the optics, yeah. you know, with that weird white batter's eye. And then some, I guess they were talking about some of the airflow because it was meant to be a stadium for track and field. So they wanted to kind of have as little airflow as possible. Um, but 
I mean, it was great because I love spreading the game to different places. You know, I want more people in this in the world to be able to, you know, to have baseball and everything. Um, so hopefully that works out. But man, they 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 really need to do some stuff about that that stadium and um, and you know that the turf and whatever. So. But uh, overall, I enjoyed it, man. It, it was pretty nice. It was pretty cool to see, you know, to see the Yankees and Red Sox in the spotlight somewhere else, um, and uh, see how other fans were reacting. Yeah, I think it it, it ended up uh, when you walk away. It was kind of a fun event. Uh, definitely some holes baseball wise, but hey, we'll take our two W's and get out of there. Only baseball team to ever win a baseball game in Europe. That's a little. That's a little Jakey stat to start off the episode. Katie, let's start off with better stats than that and some of the best stats you'll find across the lead. Uh, a, a guy that's now being talked, it, it went from, wow, this guy's having a great season, to this guy is the current AL MVP going into the All-Star break. David John makes long gone. DJ LeMahieu, LaMachina, whatever you want to call him. Katie, he's been incredible, and and it's funny, you know, more and more is starting to leak out, and we did a little bit on on when we were doing some of the Yankees' hard hit balls, the the exit velo, and some of that. It's it's gone to a new level, Katie, and and I don't know. I know you have a little bit on what what the cores effect means, because that's obviously been a popular phrase lately, especially with Rockies fans <laughs> ending up in all three of our Twitters saying, we can't believe we didn't resign this guy. And, oh, the world, oh, we, we knew we should have. This is Rockies management at it again. Uh, sorry, all our Rockies listeners. But, Katie, where, where do you want to start with DJ? Do you want to go Coors Effect? Do you want to go what's making it special? Where would you like to bring us? Well, first I kind of want to just point out that we have to remember that he was really good before. I mean, he was a really good in 2016. And, you know, granted, some of these numbers are inflated, you know, by the cores, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But he hit 348, 416, 495 in 2016, and he got MVP votes in that year. So this was no joke. Uh, and even when you look at some of his park-adjusted stats, he had a park adjusted weighted runs created plus. That's an that's an overall offensive you know stat of 130, so 30 percent better than league average, which is really good. And this year he's at about 144, 44 percent better than league average for weighted runs created plus. Um, so obviously doing a little bit better th- um, this year. But man, he was good in 2016. I think people forget that. Um, so I think I think that's that's the first thing that you want to remember. And then, um, you know, just one another thing I want to point out before we get started on this is that his skills are really, I mean, I hate to I hate to bring this word in because it's sort of overused now, but he's sort of a unicorn in this in baseball right now. If you look at what he's doing, he has elite contact skills and he pairs that with above well above average um, uh, uh, power. And I'm talking about not power. I'm talking about what I thought. Oh, hitting the ball hard. Sorry, excuse me. So elite contact skills plus hitting the ball hard. That is not something that you find in most players. Because um, you think about guys that hit the ball super hard, like Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez, they're going to whiff a lot, right? But this is DJ LeMahieu. He has a 87% contact rate this season and a hard hit rate of 45% and an exit velocity of 91, 91 miles per hour. 
All of those are well above the league average. Uh, that, that contact rate is elite. So there are only 11 other guys who have a uh, contact rate that high in the majors right now. Um, and I was looking at guys with, like, I think two, 250 plate appearances. And none of them have as high a hard hit rate, 45%, as DJ. So if you kind of want to compare it, I mean, there's basically no one else like him. Um, there are guys, you know, that are really close. Like Mike Trout is really close. He's got an 86% contact rate and, you know, about a 45% hard hit rate. Um, Justin Turner, Anthony Rendon, those are guys, those are the closest comps who either have slightly lower contact rates and equal or better uh, hard hit rates. But we're talking about somebody who has, you know, these elite skills, but I don't think ever, you know, people don't realize it because he's not hitting like the homers that judge hits or he's not, you know, he's not spraying. He's not Mike Trout. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't have that kind of cachet, but, um, but his profile is really close to what Mike Trout's is in terms of contact and, uh, hard hit skills. Um, so I think that that is sort of a natural progression to like what he's been able to do this season. And, you know, I was kind of doing a little bit of research on him and there was actually some evidence that last year, before last year, he changed some of his approach at the plate um, to, to become more like what he's doing this year. And so I, I found an article um, in April of last year on Fangraphs by uh, Travis Sawchuk, in which uh, the Rockies hitting instructor talked about how, you know, what they wanted LeMahieu to develop more pull side power because he was an extreme opposite field hitter um, his first few yeah. years. And, I mean, he had opposite field rates of over 40%, which is just ridiculous. Um, a league average is like 23%. So... And he was hitting the ball on the ground a lot. He was hitting the ball on the ground like 55% of the time his first few seasons. Um, so what they wanted to do is they knew he, he could hit the ball hard. They knew he had this great contact rate. So they, they wanted to develop some of that pull side power with him. So what they decided to do and they kind of what the changes that he made is they didn't want him to, to just constantly, you know, try and pull the ball more. Um, so this wasn't any sort of like, you know, the whole launch angle, I'm going to just hit the ball hard, wait for my pitch, and do that type of thing. It's basically anti-launch angle. What they decided, what they tried to do is to have him move his contact point forward in front of the plate so that naturally when he swung, if he swung earlier, he'd be able to hit the ball more in front of the plate, and that would allow him to pull the ball and pull the ball in the air more. You know, sounds so simple. And don't change... Yeah, don't change the swing, just change your feet. Basically. Yeah, basically, yeah, just kind of change your timing and your your setup. It's like ba- having like a stronger... scooting up on a slow pitch. Yes, having a stronger base and just swinging a little bit earlier to, to get that bat in front of the plate a little bit more. And then naturally, the ball is going to pull more and it's going to go in the air more. So, you know, that's... He wasn't trying to increase his launch angle or anything like that. And that actually led to a lot more power last year and, and pulling the ball last year more. So really that increase in pull, pull side power happened last year when he hit 15 home runs. And his, he actually evened out his, uh, op, his opposite field and pull side percentages to about 30% each. And you know kept, kept going up the center about 40% of the time. So 
you saw some of these changes to year uh, last before last year and and last year. So, you know, that's kind of the more I think that's one of the more interesting things is that this year, I mean, it's not like he's doing this whole like he's kind of like the anti-launch angle. You know, he's against everything that most people do when they make dramatic changes and you see these dramatic shifts in their stats. Um, he's not like, you know, a lot of times we talked about with Glaber, who he's kind of being a little bit more passive, waiting for his pitch to come into the zone and, and really taking advantage that way. Um, he's not doing that, and he's not trying to hit the ball in the air more. Um, so I think that that was uh, probably the most interesting thing that I that I came across. So there's a bunch of other things, but um, I don't know. I don't, have you guys, like, what do you guys think about that approach and, uh, you know, anything um, that you've seen seen somebody do like that before? Does he have crazy pull numbers this year? I can remember the home run versus, was it Richards or someone on the Blue Jays? Where he let off the game and then Judge went oppo. But he pulled the hell out of the ball. And I, I, I think there was another home run versus Torinos or two versus Torinos that he went like dead center and then pulled a little bit. I'm trying to remember big hits where he pulled the ball. I can remember another double off the wall. But he still very much goes to the right side. I picture I picture yeah. his doubles going line to line. Yeah, his basically he's that's what he is. He's line to line now. Before he was like mostly oppo. Like I said, he was about forty percent oppo, forty percent um, center, and then like twenty percent pull. But this year and last year, he's about thirty percent oppo and pull, and forty percent center. So you're still seeing a lot at the center. You're still still seeing those who hits up the center. You're still seeing. A lot of oppo, but it's a lot more. But it's more pull than we've seen in the past, um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so, are 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 you giving credence to my my Jakey theory that guys like Lemayhew, Michael Brantley, um, these guys that they it's it's called the old school approach now, which I think is funny, and I think we're gonna end up laughing at it in a little bit. Because I'll tell you what's not an old school approach. If you hit well over 300, um, and it's not like these guys are slapping. I mean, DJ does have extra base hit power now. I mean, he's he's got a nice OPS going. It's not like, I mean, DJ LeMahieu lifetime now is a 302 batting average, but he's a 770 OPS, which, which isn't that impressive. And I, I think some people might be surprised by that, especially if you've only gotten to see this DJ LeMahieu. So, I mean, it, and, and you mentioned his footwork and kind of the – the approach of kind of <laughs> making contact at a different point. Um, is that where all the power is coming from? Is it, uh, is it kind of the, I've got another little league term, like the harder they throw, the harder it goes. Is it the fact that these guys throw 95 up now and he can still barrel them up and you get more gappers or, I mean, what, what, what are the connect the dots here that are, and you know, is there credence to that theory? And I guess, is the power all tied into what you were just talking about with with kind of where he's making contact? Yeah, I think so because um, – and this is actually kind of what I wanted to talk about next in sort of this progression. And, um, you know, he's always had above average – average above uh, above the league average in terms of exit velocity and hard hit rates. He's hit, he's had hard hit rates of over 40% pretty much every season since StatCast started and exit velocity of about 91 miles per hour, um, you know, since 2015 when StatCast started measuring that. Um, and, uh, 
And what we've seen this year, though, is his, his hard hit rate has actually um, increased a little bit from last year, while his average velocity is about the same. So what he's actually doing is he's making, I think, what I, what I would like to say, more high-quality contact. So he's getting more of in that band of the upper, you know, higher exit velocities. And he's actually increased his sweet spot percentage, which we've talked about on this podcast, I think, a couple times at least, um, in terms of hitting the ball at the optimal launch angle of like between 8 and 32 degrees. Um, so he's increased the number of balls that he hits in that lane in that angle as well this year compared to last year. So basically what I see is that, um, you know, he's getting, he's got a higher rate of high quality contact, more optimizing his contact. His barrels are up. We've talked about those with Gary, um, you know, in terms of those are like the best types of batted balls that you can have. Um, so he's not necessarily hitting the ball on average any harder, but he's being more efficient, I guess with the way that he hits the ball and his swing. Uh, and that's really what you're seeing. Um, he's hitting a f- he's hitting you know a few more line drives, few fewer ground balls, so that's also helping him, I think. Um, but really in terms of his batted ball profile, um, yeah, I mean it's it's really just kind of optimizing that swing. What we talked, you know, what I kind of mentioned there. Yeah. We have a voicemail here about DJ and what he's doing with runners in scoring position. Very interesting voicemail. The question, I'll let me play it. Are we ready for this? Well, I kind of want also t- wanted to address that, uh, that cause effect thing. Because I think that's something that I know a ton of people have come about. The cause effect and then the reverse cause effect, yeah. which I, I'm actually more fascinated with. Yeah, so everyone's like, oh, well, you know, when we, when we sign him, he's like, oh, well, his home road splits, they suck, you know. And so when people think about the cause effect, they think that, oh, well, this guy's true talent is what he does on the road because his home roads are inflated, right? But really what the, what's happening is that, um, you know, you can't just, like, look at those road stats and assume that's what he's going to hit when he comes to, you know, Yankee Stadium and plays in all the other stadiums. Um, and it, yes... Hitting in Colorado helps your performance. There's no doubt about that. You know, you can't deny that his numbers in Colorado, you know, are better than they would be normally. But he's also hurt on the road more than the normal hitter, more than the average hitter. Rockies hitters are hurt on the road. So their road performance goes down while their home performance goes up. So you can't assume that what they hit on the road is what they really do. If that makes, hope that makes some sense. Um, well, I think the the reason being because balls look so good at home that when they go on the road, they have to adjust for everything else, and they're constantly in a state of adjustment that their road numbers take a dive. We talked about this before the season. At yeah. the time, Jake wasn't a believer in it. Jake, do you believe in it now? I believe in it to a degree. I mean, I, I, I still think it's kind of the sport of baseball. I, I think there's, like, I mean, even even – relating things to the London series that just happened, you see how little things can affect the game of baseball. Um, I, I, I think there's something to it. I don't think you can uh, – I, I wouldn't use it as a crush. Well, I think the most important thing is there, there's kind of like one big – two big theories about what happens is that we know in Colorado the breaking pitches 
there's there's less movement on those. So they're constantly having to adjust back and forth between seeing breaking pitches with a lot of movement, seeing break, breaking pitches with not a lot of movement. Um, and that's difficult. And uh, the other theory is that uh, opposing pitchers will throw more fastballs in Colorado because um, than they do on the road because, you know, obviously they're afraid of those breaking pitches hanging in the zone. So Rocky hitters then – there's this theory that they become more aggressive at home and less and they they adjust their aggressiveness at home to the fastballs but then when they go on the road they're sometimes too aggressive so you actually do see that in them striking out more on the road than at home and walking more you know walking less on the road than they do at home um so there is some evidence about that but i think what the i think the breaking pitches thing is actually a real thing because this is what the one last point that I want to make with with uh, how DJ has improved is that he's seen an incredible improvement on um, his ability to to hammer breaking pitches, uh, and I think that that is perhaps the most impress- impressive improvement that he's made considering where he was coming from. You know, coming from an environment where he basically had no idea what the pitch was going to do. Um, because he was going back and forth so much. So I just kind of want to throw out some of these numbers because they are pretty incredible um, in terms of what he's doing against breaking and off-speed pitches as well. Um, uh, so last year he, uh, he had a 233 batting average on breaking and off-speed pitches, a 358 slugging, and a uh, 260 WOBA on those. And those were all about league average. So it's not like he was terrible. But he was basically just about league average um, on breaking and off-speed pitches. Well, he killed fastballs. I mean, he was, he's been known as basically a fastball hitter. So this year, on breaking pitches and off-speed pitches, he's hitting 333, slugging 551 with a WOBA of 383. So if, 551 slugging on breaking pitches? Yeah. And... Uh, a 333 batting average. So if you want to put those into context, that 333 batting average is the second highest in the league right now. And that those both those slugging marks and the the woba uh, marks are both top 15 in the league. So he's been gone from basically a league average hitter on breaking and off-speed pitches to probably a top 10 top 15 hitter uh in terms of what he's doing this year. Um and to me you know, that's, that's basically kind of evidence that I think that, you know, that's, that's a really impressive improvement that he's made. It's, this is not just luck. You know, he's really learned to, to hit different pitches this year. And he still has been awesome on fastballs. Um, so basically now, like, as we've seen, there's, there's no way to get him out. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, what's his weakness right now? Nothing. He doesn't really have a weakness. (laughs) I was trying to find one. You know, you know, just kind of randomly going through splits and stuff, and there really, um, there really isn't. And I think it, maybe he, don't have any runners on base. Is he worse without runners on base? Because he's surely better with them on base. Yes, and that will bring us to our next topic, which you want to play that wonderful yeah, voicemail. Got, yeah, let me let me bring this up. Forget who it was from, but it's a good question. Hey, John Boy. Hey, Jake. This is for a sharp set segment or show. Um, 
Question about DJ LeMahieu's ability to hit with runners in scoring position, his clutch ability. What is the all-time record, and you think it's possible for him to actually annihilate that record, the way he's hitting with runners in scoring position? Thanks. Great job, everyone. So, runners in scoring position, right now he's been automatic. He's amazing. And, uh, you know, some people will tell you it's just circumstance and clutch isn't real. Jake last episode said, you know, putt for fun and then putt with $100 on the line. And that's a great example of feeling the difference and the pressure of a moment. And some people can calm that and other people can't. And there's no way you can measure that with numbers. So they just say, since we can't measure with numbers, it doesn't exist. Any athlete in the world will tell you pressure moments exist and some people crumble and some people come to task and DJ comes to task. But this is a great question by this guy. What's, what are we looking at here? Like, is he even close? I don't have any sense of relatableness to, like, what a record for total season runners in scoring position type numbers would be. I have no sense of it. Is he close to that? Is he above it? Is he well below it? Uh, what is it, Katie? Um, all right. So the, uh, the single season batting average record for runners in scoring position, and uh, actually this only goes back. We only have fully complete data for this going back to 1974 so i don't want to call this like an all-time record or anything um okay so but 74 is pretty decent yeah i mean that's this is the modern era of baseball right you know it's, it's better when they than when they say since Statcast has been invented which is like four right, years, right 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 yeah i don't there are no records since you know whatever um but yeah so since 1974 in you know, looking at guys with at least 100 plate appearances uh, with runners in scoring position. The highest one is uh, by George Brett in 1980, and it was 469. So DJ is at 486 as we um, entering Tuesday. Um, so, yes, he is, he's better than, than, than the all-time record. Um, and it's still very early. It'll probably cool off. Like It will most definitely cool off, you would think, but he is a machine right now. But that's interesting to note that what he's doing right now is above the, the record. Yeah. And so I kind of, you know, I think the, the question is, well, does he have a chance of annihilating this? So what I did is I kind of looked at some, some splits. I looked at some of the expected stats with StatCast. And, I mean, yes, obviously, and this, this should not be a surprise, but his actual numbers are a lot higher than his StatCast numbers. You know, the, the expected stats that we talk about here, the expected yeah. batting average, um, the expected slugging. So, yes, his batting average is 486. His expected batting average is 351, which is still really awesome. Um, and his slugging is 546, his, or his slugging is 722. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Um, and his expected slugging is 546, which is still really awesome with the runners in scoring position. Um, so yes, you know, the metrics say that he is, he's going to regress and I think he will regress somewhat, but I kind of looked at his splits and he's, he's hitting the ball a ton better with runners in scoring position, uh, compared to overall. So his hard hit rate is higher. His launch angle is higher. His sweet spot percentage is higher. He's hitting more line drives with runners in scoring position. Um, he's whiffing less. His strikeout rate is 10% in runners in scoring position. It's 14% overall. So he's doing a lot of things right with runners in scoring position. So I think that we can expect him to 
be better. You know, I think that he can. I think he can sustain something over 400. <laughs> I don't think he's going to sustain 46 for the rest of the season. Um, but I think that he can sustain into the 400s. Um, and people have done that in the past. Um, you know, it's it's not ridiculous for a player to hit over 400 with, with runners in scoring position for an entire season. Um, Is it easy to find out what Yankee, like, recently has had? Any, like, last Yankee to have over 400 with runners in scoring position? Well, the Yankee record uh, is is 428 and that's by Paul O'Neill in 97. Um nice. So What year was George Brett, did you say? 1980. 1980. So, you know, All-Star, Silver Slugger, MVP. Yeah, winner. I mean, that was basically a really good year for him. Um batted 390 on the season. <laughs> yeah. So, I think that if I mean, I think a DJ absolutely can probably hit over 400, so I'm looking at so Paul O'Neill um, and then the only other guy under over 400 for the Yankees was uh, Mattingly in 84, who hit exactly 400. Luis Soho. No, oh. yeah, good, good, good guess. Um, Don Mattingly in 84 hit exactly 400 with runners in scoring position. Um, so I think that he has a chance to get, I think he has a chance to reach Paul O'Neill's record um, and, 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 and uh, stay above 400 uh, because he does, like I said, he has that elite approach. He has the elite contact, and he has the above average, well above average exit velocity and hard hit rate. And those two things are real are going to help you out with runners in scoring position. The other thing that I think is really important to note, which is why I think he can maintain it too, you know, at least in the 400s, is that he's basically shift proof. Um, he hasn't seen a shift since 2016. Think about that. It's been three years since anybody has tried to shift on him. Um, and they used to do crazy shifts because he was so well. Awful. Yes, <laughs> I should have said I should have um, done that as he hasn't seen an infield shift since 2016. He's actually seen an outfield shift, an opposite field out, outfield shift. Yeah, he saw yeah. a couple of those. Okay. I think it was 2017. A couple of teams did that. It's really cool. You should go. Google it or something like that. Check it out on Statcast. Yeah, there's like four outfielders. He hits it to the right side yes. still gets a triple. No, but he actually hit it to the right side, and it was like perfectly in the gap, and the guy yeah. caught it on, on the fly. I believe that was against like the Diamondbacks or something. Um, but it was like right where it would have been totally in the gap of like uh, right field, center field, and the center fielder was right there. So they had like four outfielders in the, cen- in a, in the outfield, and they were all shifted to that side. Um, so anyways, so, you know, because of his, like what I said, his unicornness, <laughs> um, because he's shift proof, I think that he has a chance to stay within, stay at least, stay above 400 with runners in scoring position. I don't, it, 469 is really good. Um, so I don't know if he can keep that up, but, uh, but you know, he's, he's special and he's doing special things this year. Katie, I, I have a question for you that because um, you you are incredible with stats, but I, I I very much enjoy getting your thoughts on things. And we we mentioned a lot of a lot of different things here. And, you know, it, it's been awesome. This LeMahieu season, no matter how you look at it, is awesome. Whether you want to look analytics or raw stats, you can't pick it apart right now. 
I mean, we we talked a little bit of Core's effect, and by the way, I think we grab we we've got a friend out here, Drew Creaseman, who's uh, baseball writers of America. He has a popular Rockies podcast. I think we should all do a Core's effect thing one day. Oh, yeah. I think that would be a lot of fun. Well, he we talked um, about it when he was on before the season. He was the one that that was like letting us know about the reverse effect. Yeah, the and I, I think I I think we'd have a lot of fun with that, and I I, I have I do have new forming thoughts on it because right now it sounds like it'd be a bad to be a hitter and a pitcher, but we'll <laughs> we'll come back there another time. But Katie, this off season we have a we have a ton of free agents. Everyone's screaming Machado and Harper. Obviously, front office look at it look at things differently now. Um, you know, Jed Lowry was a guy who I, I think he was either an all-star last year or he had a really good season. We, we, there was a lot of different options out there. What, were, what was the Yankees' front office saying when we signed DJ LeMahieu this offseason? Were they saying, hey, if we move his point of ball contact up an inch and a half, he can be an elite hitter? Do, they, do you think they saw something in the 2016 tape that they said, we can get this out of him? I, 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 I want to know, like, you, you know, you, you have the stats to go with it, but what, what do you think they were saying in there? Well, I think, <laughs> I think the reason they – actually, I think one of the main reasons was because he was so versatile. I think that they wanted him for his defense first um, because he could – they knew that they were going to have some – they knew they were going to have a shortage of infielders, um, you know, with D.D. and uh, – with D.D. on the – with the – you know, D.D. being out – and they wanted some guy who could kind of shift around. And, you know, with Tulo, they signed Tulo, but they knew they weren't. I don't think they were really banking on Tulo. Um, but uh, <laughs> that was a nice, that was a fun little experiment. Um, <laughs> but I think that they really wanted him because of his de- defensive versatility. And they knew that they were really bad in, in the infield on defense last year. And they knew that was one area that they wanted to improve. Um, so I think first and foremost, I think that was what helped him. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they saw those contact numbers combined with those exit velocity numbers. Because we know the Yankees look at that stuff. We know they did it with Luke Voigt. Yeah. Luke Voigt. And they probably kind of saw the same thing that the Rockies did um, last year. Because I, I mentioned these changes were made in 2018. You know, before kind of in the 2018 offseason, before the 2018 season when he moved his point of contact forward. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Yankees saw those two things and say, hey, this guy has some hidden hidden power. This guy is actually, he was really good at one point. He had a bad, you know, he kind of fell off the cliff a little bit in 2017 and 2018. He kind of was still, you know, had a down year as well. But, um, you know, I think that they kind of saw what he did in 2016. They knew it was in him. They knew he, that he had the ability to just, a knack for really hitting the ball and and um, putting wood, you know, putting the barrel to the ball, um, and they knew he could hit the ball hard, and that that they felt like that he was gonna have a lot more success, um, you know, this year. So we we saw it with Luke Voigt, and I think this is just another example of uh, the Yankees' analytics kind of finding that hidden gem. And go analytics, those- go. Speaking of those Yankees analytics a little bit, and and the LeMahieu stuff is awesome. And, I I mean, as a person that loves looking at box scores or baseball reference or anything, DJ LeMahieu right now is five off of his season-high RBIs in a season. He is three away from his career-high in home runs, which was last year in 128 games, even though 
uh, you know, some of his other peripheral stats are down. So um, it's 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 been an incredible watch. And I I think we're going to end up complimenting that same Yankees front office a little more. And I think we're going to kick it off with another voicemail, Jamalope. Yep. Oh, yeah. John Boy, Jake, it's Kyle from California. I had a question for Katie. Maybe you guys can let me answer it. I'm looking at the standings and the Red Sox are 10 games back at the first place. Is there a way to look at the percentages of teams that can come back from 10, day, 10 games down? Thanks, guys. I thought it was interesting. We can peacock a little. Yanks are 10 games up on the Sox. Actually, the it's Rays actually 11 now. 11, yeah. yeah. But – how bad is that for the Red Sox? How, what's the likelihood that they could come back? Has a team ever come back? Have the Red Sox ever come back? What's going on? What are some stats sur- surrounding this lead or dividend the Sox have put themselves in? All right. Um, so let's get to the numbers here. Come on. No messing around here. Um, so like I said, what I did is I looked at – I actually wanted to kind of figure out like – so the Yankees are winning on July 1st. They're leading the division on July 1st. You know, what does that actually mean? You know, does this mean that they have a really good chance of kind of maintaining their division lead and, and uh, you know, winning the, winning the AL East, which is, I think, was the main goal for this team coming into the coming into the season because of just how awful we've seen the wild card be um, the past couple of years. So I went back to the wild card, the start of the wild card era, 1995, and I looked at all the teams that were in first place on entering July 1st, so when you woke up on July 1st, and then where they finished um, at the end of the season. So what I found is that uh, 65% of the teams that were leading or tied for the division lead on July 1st ended up winning their division uh, going back to 1995. So two out of three, basically two-thirds of the teams um, were leading their division. The other interesting thing I found was that of the 24 World Series winners, 16 of them were leading on the division. So there's a good chance that the team that is leading in division right now um, is going to be hoisting the trophy at the end of the season. Hopefully that'll be the Yankees, but... um, but So those numbers were actually pretty surprising to me because, I mean basically what three months into the season and we can predict like two-thirds of the teams that are going to be uh winning their division at this point um and then then yeah that's nuts yeah it it is pretty nuts and actually the last team the last world series winner that was not leading their division on july 1st was the giants in 2010 wow so um so yeah shit so every World Series winner, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. Yeah. All were leading their division by the break? Yeah. That's That's kind of crazy. Yeah. And I feel like we jinxed everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can blame it on me. <laughs> Jinx well, squad. Um, to be fair, to be fair, we are one of six teams leading their division. Right. Yeah. So. so there's like it's not like the Yankees are the only team that is in this pool. Like there's six teams every year in this pool that can win. You know, that are leading their division. But it is crazy. But it. But that still is nuts. That like, 
I don't know, last year when the Red Sox were winning their division at the All-Star break, we weren't that far behind, and I was like, well, we can easily catch up. That happens all the time, but no, apparently it doesn't. We didn't. And only I think it was five. I didn't. I don't have. I closed my spreadsheet on that one, but um, I think there was only one team that was not leading the division last year on July first that ended up winning, and I believe that was. I think it was the Dodgers. Yeah, it was the Dodgers last year. Remember they got off to that horrible start, so they play. They had to play catch up a lot most of the season. They I think they ended up leading. You know, at the All Star break or something, and then you know went on that huge run at the end of the season but um uh so yeah and then so then the next thing I wanted to do is kind of look at like well how safe is our lead really um so at this point on July when we woke up on July 1st we were actually seven ahead of the Rays um seven games ahead so there were only four teams that have overcome deficits of at least seven games uh on July 1st to then win the division. Those were the uh, the 2003 A's. They they had a seven-game deficit. They ended up winning the AL West. The, the uh, 2006 Twins, they were down 11 games. Yikes, remember the, that White Sox-Twins debacle? I or no, that was the, that was the Tigers, right? Was it Tigers? Or White Sox who collapsed? No, the White I'm Sox. I'm blanking. I, um, but... And then the uh, the 2007 Cubs were seven and a half back, and they ended up winning. And then uh, our favorite team, the 2012 A's, were 13 back. Uh, if you guys remember, they just went on that humongous, like they had a 20-game win streak, I think that was the year. Um, yeah, Moneyball year? No, not the Moneyball year. Or no, was that the Moneyball year, 2012? No, 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 no. That was way before. Uh, no, Moneyball yeah. was before. That was, uh, well, they, I don't know if they went on that 20-game win streak, but they were 13 back. Moneyball year, that 2012 was when they played the wild card, right? Or no, the the ALDS, it was uh, like Sonny Gray versus Verlander. It was crazy series. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they were 13 back on July 1st. So those are four teams that overcame seven-game deficits to win the division. And you notice that only two of those were 11 or more games, which is what the Red Sox are back um, as of July 1st. Um, and then the other thing I looked at was, so then I found a note, um, I believe it was from like the Live Sports Bureau, that said that the largest deficit that the Red Sox have over, ever overcome to win a division is 10 games. And that was in 1988. So they'd be, bra- they'd be making history. They, for their franchise, they would be making history. And pretty rare, though, you know, during the wild card era when only two teams have done it uh, in the past, what, yeah. 25 years. Um, we are the sport. Baseball is a sport where anything can happen. But bottom line, it seems like, surprise, surprise, being uh, this far ahead in our own division at the half is a good thing. Yes, Yankee fans. It is a good thing that we are, we are doing this well. <laughs> awesome. I'm excited about that. That, that division winner... If you told me, you know, the World Series, like, you know, you gave me a later date, like the end of July, end of August. Yeah. That's that's like like almost like, of course. But the All-Star break, I feel like we, we see swings in the standings all the time. The last eight World Series winners were leading their division by the break. That's kind of crazy to me. Uh, it's July 1st, so not technically not the All-Star break, but yeah. Well, that's the same thing. Yeah. Little even even better actually. 
<laughs> Even crazier, right? Yeah, yeah. It's before that, yeah. Kind of, yeah. 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 Using that logic. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to bring up the standings right now. I maybe this year's a bad example, but I mean the the three AL Astros have a six and a half game lead on the Rangers, who who nobody was really in on. I guess the Twins and the Indians is one to watch if the Indians could find some magic, but they have an eight game lead right now. And then in the National League, the only close lead in baseball right now is the Brewers Cub. They're a game apart. Braves have a five and a half game lead and the Dodgers already have a 12 spot in the in the West so uh yeah that's some uh little baseball standings magic there sharp stat standings leave that in the comments and reviews um Katie I think is it is it that magical time of the show sharp stat of the week Sharp and I think you have, do you have three for us? Are you spoiling us? I did. I couldn't. I couldn't choose because I tweeted. Wow. So I found. I was looking at you know what we did in June, and there was just. I found some historical performances in June that I just that just kind of wowed me. That I don't think people realized how hot a couple of these players were in June. Well, maybe you did, but you didn't just realize to the extent of how hot how good these these uh, these three players were in June. Um, so, uh, so I'll start off with the first one and it's our, it's our favorite little, little, uh, baby boy, Glaber Torres. And he had a 462 on base percentage in June. That's, um, really good. We talked about his improvements, um, on our last show, I believe it was, you know, walking a lot more and just being a lot more disciplined and, and everything. Um. We talked about his power, but we didn't really talk about his, his on-base percentage. So this 462 on-base percentage, it's the third highest in any calendar month for a Yankee age 22 or younger with at least 60 plate appearances in that month. Third highest. The guys ahead of him, Joe DiMaggio had a 504 OBP in July 1937. And Charlie Keller had a 543 OBP in August 1939. So he's behind Joe DiMaggio and Charlie Keller, who are uh, very good players, in case you guys didn't know. Uh, anybody not aware of Yankees history, those, those are two icons. Uh, <laughs> I was joking there, obviously. Um, so, yeah, so that's our, that's our sharp stat number one. Um, go Glaber. Then, Go Glaber. Yeah. And then we all know how good uh, Chad has been. Chad Green, our newest favorite reliever. So what I did is I kind of wanted to – I looked at his numbers, and I'm like – a couple things stood out to me. I'm like, wow. So we've heard – I think we've talked about maybe on this podcast about fielding, fielding independent pitching, which it looks at basically what things are – a pitcher does that are independent of the defense behind him. So that really his – his defenders can't control that he basically controls by himself or at least has more control over than other things like hits and runs scored right and those three things are walks strikeouts and home runs so three things that a pitcher kind of has reasonable control over what what happens um so in june chad green had 20 strikeouts one walk and no homers allowed and 
the only other Yankee pitcher to have those numbers, so at least 20 strikeouts, one walk or fewer, and no home runs in a calendar month. I bet you guys can probably guess it's it's Mariano Rivera. Ramiro Mendoza. Oh, <laughs> close. No, it's 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 the great Same the great Mariano and he did it twice. He did it in September 1996 <laughs> and he did it in July 2005. So Saying he did it twice. I know. Mariano yeah. yeah. He did. Oh, by the way, he did, he did do it twice, but it's, this is very rare. And one of those was in September, you know, inarguably one of like, you know, during that pennant in 1996 when the Yankees were trying to close out that pennant there. Um, so, yeah, he's good. Katie, I, I've got a butter knife on Chad Green that I, I think I said it on the podcast, but I need to say it to you because... I feel like Jimmy didn't appreciate it enough, and I like being appreciated. You know that. Um, Chad's last oh. last 15 innings, 11 games, 15 innings, 24 strikeouts, 0.6 ERA, sure. Katie, the, his BABIP in that time period is 417. Are you kidding? So he he's pitched to a .6 ERA, 0.6. Yeah. Like how's that like With one run? Four seventeen. Yeah, it's like one run allowed. I think. Yes. Right. Yeah. And if guys are batting the ball in play, they're <laughs> they're hitting they're, the four seventeen. Yeah, they're gonna get a hit. You know, but he, the thing is, probably he doesn't allow that many balls in play because exactly. he's striking so out it's, everybody. It's, oh, it's it's awesome. That's a great. I, that was a great note. I, that Babbitt note is great. I, I feel appreciated now. Thank you, Katie. All right. Jake has butter knife stat off. Okay, wait. <laughs> All right, before we end, you know, I got one more sharp stat, and it has to be about DJ LeMayhew. You knew it. You knew it was coming. Um, so his June, we know, was pretty ridiculous. Uh, he had 45 hits and 29 runs batted in, RBIs, in June. That seems good. So the last Yankee. Let me talk about this. The last Yankee to have that many hits, so at least 45 hits, and that many RBIs, so at least 29 RBIs in any calendar month, was Mickey Mantle in May of 1956. And if you remember, Mickey Mantle went on to win the MVP in the Triple Con that year. Now, I'm not saying that, obviously, DJ's going to do that, but that was a pretty good year. Well, no, that's what Mantle. George Brett did in 1980 as well. Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, my gosh. Jesus. All right. Well, there you go. I ended up on – I was clicking through George Brett's 1980 season. Yeah. Right? And then I ended up on this YouTube video. Maybe I'll send you guys the link in the chat because um, I'm, I'm going to post this on Twitter. Watch this, Jake. I want to get your reaction. It's George Brett, Game 3 of the 1980 World Series, his first at-bat of the game, facing a pitcher named Dick Ruthven, Dick Ruthven, and I, they're like 29, Ruthven's 29 years old, George Brett is, I don't know how old he was in 1980, probably pretty young, he was 27, so 27 year old versus 29 year old, home run in the World Series, and it looks like two old men playing the slowest, slowest version of baseball I've ever seen. <laughs> Do you watch I, I was wondering where you were going with it. Yeah, it uh 
They they both have baby faces, which has thrown me off. But yeah, it's um. The pitch looks like it's forty miles per hour, and the swing looks like a practice golf swing. I was like, what is this version of baseball? <laughs> don't, so don't throw low and into a lefty. That's rule number one. Um, uh, Katie, did you were you able to pull that up? I don't have the chat. I don't. I don't know no. what I do. I am. I'm on my phone, my mobile phone. Well, I'm gonna so. post it and say, "Look at these yeah. late twenty year olds." They look I don't. Like I don't have that chat years thing. Old. That looks like how O'Neill, Paul O'Neill, swinging in the old timers' day. Yeah, that pitch looked oddly slow. Um, yeah, and I, I think, uh, well, be ready for a John Boy George Brett clip coming up. Um, and and Katie, I, I think I don't know if it's the cherry on top or, or if we go around the horn again. I think Paulio said this in the booth the other day, and it's just part of the allure of the Yankees is that anytime someone does something special, whether it's just for a month or a week, you go, oh, yeah, the last Yankee to do that, Lou Gehrig, Roger Maris, Babe Ruth. And that really is kind of a special part of the organization that I don't think I fully understood until Paul said that recently. I understood, like, wearing the pinstripes, Babe Ruth, and obviously all of that. But I guess it's kind of cool. You put together a few two good weeks, and it's like, wow, Cameron Mabin, you just did this for the first time since Lou Gehrig. It's like, damn, that's that's something you keep forever. Yeah, I think that we're nice being a Yankee. We're we're spoiled, you know. And uh, you know, I think I'm a little bit spoiled too because you know, obviously, you guys know, and everybody knows on Twitter, I like to tweet out a lot of historical stats, um, and I feel spoiled that I get to compare. You know, these present day guys, DJ, Glaber, um, Chad, to not just like the greatest Yankees, but like the greatest players in Major League history, um, just because we have that we have that heritage and everything. So. So, yeah. So uh, thank God. Thank God for making me for making me a Yankee. Did I did I just butcher that Lou Gehrig line <laughs> or or what? I'm sorry. But yes, you got it. We'll get we'll get that in post. Um, any anything else, guys? Jimmer, Kate? I think that's all. Go Yanks! I'm excited to uh, get back to normal Yankee baseball. Yeah. Here. George Brett was an All Star like 15 years in a row. He's he good. was pretty good. Look at this. Look at this. From 1974 <laughs> on, listen to this run. Rookie of third and Rookie of the Year, 11th and MVP, All Star second and MVP, All Star third, 10th and MVP, All Star 19th and MVP, All Star third and MVP. All-Star MVP, All-Star MVP 27th, All-Star MVP 20th, All-Star, All-Star, All-Star 2nd in MVP voting, All-Star, All-Star, All-Star 12th in MVP voting, nothing, suck it 1989, terrible year, and then MVP 7th in 1990. George Brett was good, huh? Yeah. George Brett was good. Welcome to, welcome to Talking Yanks. <laughs> he was good even when he didn't use pine tar, right? Yeah. Boom. 16 out of his 20 years in the league, he was an all-star, an all-star, or got MVP voting. <laughs> Nuts. Yeah. That's great. Maybe I'll ask my grandma about it, but for now, we'll just have her tell you. Go Yankees. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, 
Check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You fill out a questionnaire, they match you with a licensed therapist, and you can switch anytime, no additional charge. So, celebrate the progress that you've already made by visiting BetterHelp.com slash Yanks today, and you'll get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Yanks. 